in doing this, engaging with this, I have been in need of some concepts to explore what is happening in Brazil with both the staged events to remember the establishment of the dictatorship in uh, <clears throat> 1964, and also with current street demonstrations. And these entail a narrative about the past, configuring a present, and indicating an imagined future. Or this is how these events interest me, how the past is presented, and what future is shaped up in these presentations. I have here empirical and theoretical challenges. I want to take you along my main empirical site and I make some theoretical reflections alongside this. My presentation will be in three parts. Uh, it will focus on Brazil's recent traumas, the exhibition of violence through a particular case, and reflections about social change, uh, both broadly theoretical and as applied to the case of Brazil. So between 1964 and 1985, Brazilian political regime was an authoritarian dictatorship. The extent of political violence varied during these 21 years, being particularly extreme from late 1960s to mid-1970s. The regime created torture, death, disappearance of large numbers of people. The violence by the state was accompanied by imposed silence and censorship, not to be talked about, repressed by force. With democracy returned, slowly, a politics of reparation got started. However, unlike in neighboring countries, Argentina and Chile, crimes committed by the Brazilian state during the dictatorship remain unpunished. Two main views have divided public opinion. On one hand, it's advocated that silence is best for peace. On the other hand, it's understood that torture is a crime to be punished by law. Uh, a brief timeline of the democratic counting of the dictatorship crimes. You can see it starting in 1995 <coughs> under the presidency of Fernando Cardoso, a sociologist, um, when for the first time the government accepted some responsibility for the violent acts. And then this got steam under Lula's presidency. Uh, Lula was from the Workers' Party uh, from 2007. That eventually led to the inauguration of a truth commission in May 2013, with the first findings published in 2014. Some of you may know that in April 2016, there was uh, an impeachment process against the then President Dilma Rousseff. And at that moment, uh, a congressman, Jair Bolsonaro, dedicated his vote 
in Congress to the 1964 military, praising this uh, Colonel Ustra, who was a former chief of one of the main torture centers and the one where Dilma Rousseff had been tortured. This is just a small indication about what sorts of behavior is authorized even at the level of, uh, you know, top government. This man remains unpunished. He says, I read yesterday, that he may be a vice president uh, if there is, you know, an opportunity for him to run. Um, and then you may know that Dilma himself was impeached and this ended a 30-year rule by the Workers' Party. So the duration of accounting for crimes is relatively long, but its effectiveness seems feeble and small. There is a collective imaginary about the time of the dictatorship, when Brazil prospered economically, thanks to the so-called economic miracle, erasing or justifying the political barbarism committed under the authoritarian regime. The correct narrative about the memory of Brazil's dictatorship period is a highly contentious matter. Academics have discussed this as a war of memory. Among left academics, human rights groups, and other progressive sections of society, the shared collective memory about what passed during the dictatorship period does not resonate with the memory of large sections of the population ignorant of its very violent recent past. On one hand, Clearly, the forgetting has created a memory. A romantic view pervades a country that doesn't trust justice, where calls for unity against evil prevail. And on the other hand, dictatorial authoritarian reminiscences proliferate in Brazilian institutions. A lot of violence at many levels of civil society go unpunished daily. It's argued by historians that extreme violence has been marked in Brazil not only in its recent past, but from its inception when the colonizer exterminated the indigenous population. Clearly, a vision of the past is linked to a vision about a way of being in the present and an imagined future. I want to show you a bit about this in a project I'm developing on exhibiting violence and social change. In June 2014, I was teaching a postgraduate short course at the University of Sao Paulo. In the humanities and social science building, the walls were covered with posters about performances and events related to the 50th anniversary of the installation of the dictatorship. I said this was installed in 1964, lasting until 1985. I grew up in this non-democratic culture. So here enters the museum. This museum is now the resistance memorial 
It is a branch of the Pinacoteca of the state of Sao Paulo, a sort of national gallery. This building used to be the Department of Social and Political Order. It had, um, it changed quite a bit from when it was built till now. I have done some study and I have written about that, but that's not pertinent here. What matters and is important is that this was one of the two major prisoner torture centers during the dictatorship period. And this is in the very center of Sao Paulo. This is the DOPS, we call it, the initials for Department of Economic and so, Social. Okay, so the exhibition was shown in this now resistance memorial. The title of the exhibition was Political Dead and Disappeared, Roots to Truth and Justice. The exhibition was powerful, full of objects and people, focusing on bodies, individuals and photographs, unearthing bodies and documents, producing accounts and counting bodies as demographics and political involvement. It presented a narrative I had not seen before of the participation of civic powers in the military intervention. I saw there for the first time the label, the civil military dictatorship. Up to then, it had been the military dictatorship. So, let us briefly see who is the exhibition for. The exhibition is to those who died in the struggle for free Brazil. It's done for the right to memory and truth. And the exhibition, I will absolutely not do justice here to the exhibition. I'm just, you know, showing you very little excerpts to give you some idea of its contents, so I can talk a bit about its implications. So, um, it shows, you know, these photographs and posters of people, uh, of demonstrations calling for, you know, companions uh, who will be revenged, asking for prisoners to be liberated, we see nuns, mothers, older women uh, asking in placards, where is naming these people who had disappeared, Sydney or Regina and so on. And we see lots of younger people likewise asking where, you know, these uh, people were and so on. Secondly, who stages the exhibition and why? So, as I said, this brings about the label civil military dictatorship. The exhibition is presented as a duty and a commitment to all Brazilian society with promises that when I can no longer speak, you shall speak for me, or dead and disappeared, yes, erased from history, never. So there is here a future that is pointed at. <clears throat> and here these promises are actually the raison d'etre 
of the resistance memorial itself. The center of the exhibition is the radiography of repression. And this is shown uh, with the presentation of the dead and the disappeared, uh, where 400 people are identified, 53 were not known uh, yet, and it presents their names and the statistics about their jobs, origin, age, place where they were born, place where they were killed or disappeared. Uh, most died, uh, these are, we know, in the country they are placing these statistics. Most died in Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo or Pala, where there was a big demonstration, or in Rio, 111. Uh, mostly were very young, starting at 17, over half or less than 30. Nearly a third were students. There were about a sixth, one sixth of middle class professions. Only 11% were women. Roughly 60% were known to be dead, 40% disappeared. It also shows engagements of, you know, the families uh, and the unearthing of cadavers with the, fa the families being present exhibiting bodies, um, and these are death certificates signed by doctors whom we knew very well who they were at the time, but there was no proof. And so all this work is giving, is constructing a memory with the presentation of evidence, and this memory is also constructed in the very cells of the dots. There were four large cells, maybe smaller than this uh, room, each of them, where about 50 uh, prisoners uh, were kept at any time. And they, these are the cells uh, that they, they show in the, in the exhibition. Uh, recreating some of the stories. There is also a presentation of a history mapping events at the local, national and international level. So, with all of this together, in the museum, the bodies returned to the docks now dead with rights. They speak politically, the language being not vocal. <coughs> the social and political world sustains the bodies that had disappeared. Yet, if the social and political world, which I'm not elaborating about, is amplified in the connections that are made between local events, international events, and so on, so on, in ways which were not present at the time. I mean, a narrative that didn't circulate at the time was circulating now in the space of this exhibition. 
The history of the bodies is highly simplified as well. While some individual suffering is portrayed, torture and violence is greatly sanitized in the exhibition. It seems that curators were concerned about, probably quite rightly, about what the audience could bear. Curation is here making fragments, organizing narrative into particular new assemblages. In this process, it creates a particular unfolding of the past. It also shows that the future can be different from the present, enacting hope. In face of this new narrative, I ask what bodies are in question here? And my answer is that the bodies concerned are both those in the museum and the bodies on the street, demonstrating on and off since June 2013. Some of you may recall that prior to the World Cup, one year earlier, political demonstrations flared up in major Brazilian cities. We could talk about this, but for now, just some questions to connect ongoing politics with the exhibition. What are bodies doing on the streets when demonstrating? And what are bodies doing in the museum when they are counted and narrated, when they make an appearance? Writing about street demonstrations, Judith Butler says that for politics to take place, the body must appear. But the appearance is performed only between bodies, in the gap, or I'd say in the connections, between one's body and another's, because to become a political is to be made plural. I see here echoes of Hannah Arendt's view views about the depriving of the space of appearance as the deprivation of reality in her analysis of totalitarian regimes that forbid things and bodies to appear. The question then is how a plurality is formed, what material support it requires, who and what appears in the space of the museum and in the space of the street. So in relation to my work, the question is, what does this account of the body in political space make of the spectral body, the dead, the disappears, the untalked about? As Butler puts it, in relation to a new between of bodies. Bodies are seized and animated by those existing spaces in the very acts by which they reclaim and resignify their meanings. These bodies bring about the space of appearance, the transposability into a new reality. Dead bodies could not be silenced, yet they make noises through the living.
the making of them as exhibits of a past, a desire for a future. Vicky Bell finds in her work on Argentina that the past returns, fashioned for present purposes, and in order to settle specific demands in the present. Bell invokes Derrida to present the specter as legacy that can come only from that which has not yet arrived. One future must be avoided, the other brought about. This performativity carries a risk that something may be wiped out. On the basis of this, the question to ask is, instead of disappearing, what is being made to appear? In what ways is the exhibition's aesthetic montage supplementing history or a history? A proposal from Studies of Science and Technology by Bruno Latour in his Reassembling the Social is to turn solid objects into their fluid states to render visible the networks that produce them. For exhibitions like this one, the trick for curators is to animate dynamic relationships and trace connections. Exhibitions orchestrate facts, effects, facts too. They compose feelings and sense impressions, escaping and containing affects. The images have emotional life. Here I find Jill Bennett's work helpful. Drawing from Deleuze and Foucault, she remarks that an aesthetic project reconfigures the historical event as a different experience. It reorients the traumatic event. This dead and disappeared exhibition, both assembled and presented in the past, and also upset and transformed collective memories. The concern clearly is, was about perception, not about knowledge. In order to engineer social change, it's fundamental to know about such perceptions and connections. So, to sum up, what I wanted to have shown is that aesthetic projects like the Dead and Disappeared exhibition connect matters of the past with the present in ways that signal social change. And also that the future arises from the present and it is envisaged in present life. This is why we are required to learn how the future haunts our present. The limits of what we can bear curb our imagination for change, of what can be. Researching this, I have come across a number of emerging analyses. Professor of Literary Theory, Seligman Silva in Brazil, refers to Walter Benjamin's statement that to remember barbarism is to eliminate culture, history, and inheritance. In his various pieces of writing about Latin American political dramas, 
Seligman Silva borrows Benjamin's notion of the optic unconscious, which is a hidden layer in the psychic economy manifested in a culture shaken by the disclosure of violence. He analyzes witnessing as part of a complex, complex politics of memory, arguing that the memory of a trauma is a compromise between the labor of individual memory and that memory constructed socially. Latin America is a permanent branch for explorations of these sorts. <coughs> Since the 1960s, the concept of testimony has become central in the resistance to the dictatorship regimes there is told. The dominant powers erase places and marks of atrocities. The effect has been to affirm that an imaginary, that of violence, was not true. Resistance to this process operates in negation of the negation. The circulation of images of the traumatic event to others, it is claimed, allows survivors to restart their links with the world. This was not circulated. My interest here is about what this does to collective imagination. So trauma is characterized by being a past that has not passed. Any testimony situation is always a present situation, revealing that the past has not passed. This is why, for my purposes, the narrative of the testimony, visual in the case I explored, matters. The narratives are articulated publicly in a curatorial museum project. Of course, the images do not only give a testimony, they perform a reality. So I said, I have been in need of some concepts to explore what is happening in Brazil. I want to propose some theoretical reflections about concepts I find may further assist with what I seek to investigate. For many years now, I have been involved with a proposal strongly emphasized in our former Center for Research on Social Cultural Change, a book that Krishna showed, uh, and the ongoing work of many colleagues to identify processes of social change away from epochal views, based on the everyday lives, ordinary accomplishments in social life and culture. This is why I turn to explore the productiveness of the concepts of habitus and haunting. So, why is habitus relevant to what I want to do? Because habitus refers to a structuring structure that directs and limits the potential of social change. Habitus is one of the three main concepts developed by French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. There are varied interpretations of the meaning of the concept and its applicability to analysis of social change. I'm unable to attend to controversies about this in this talk. You can see I've written a bit about it. 
What I'll do is to indicate my position regarding the productivity of the notion of habitus to analyze social change. A key register of the concept of habitus is that it incorporates past experiences which are modified by present ones as well as a sense of a probable future. Although early influences always bear more weight. A key concern of mine is how the habitus is transformed as one relates to various fields both over time and simultaneously. Habitus is not a standalone concept. It needs to be understood in relation to the concepts of field and capital. For Bourdieu, fields comprise relational dynamics of objective structures, but being modes of organized striving, fields include relational and personal work. Habitus essentially involve the development of a fuel for the game, an illusion, by reference to a field. <coughs> illusion is how the world or the field or the context is read by the individual as it is perceived and the ways in which it is invested. Investment implies value, valuation and capital. The rules of the game are set by the field. For example, you can think the political field of the, the dictatorship, differing from the field of the democratic period. Part of the illusion is misrecognition by the person or group about the implications of the game. The placing of habitus in a field, this could be the field of the dictatorship, or could be resistance within the dictatorship, or it could be artistic engagements to account for truth and justice in the democratic period, for example. So the placing of habitus within a field asserts that phenomena must be analyzed relationally according to the field in which agents are positioned. People act in a field that molds them, yet individuals belong to diverse fields at the same time. The prevalence of varied belongings in contemporary life is particularly salient, requiring some rethink for extending the notion of habit. In a lecture series on the state at the Collège de France in December 1991, Boudia says that the state can set out to create a national habitus, unifying cultures around certain codes or morals. But habitus doesn't operate only at large levels. Micro-individual and macro-historical changes are acknowledged in Bourdieu's framework, ranging from people's conscious or unconscious adjustments of behavior to meet approval or disapproval as they we carry projects in daily life, or in aspects of cultural tradition, for example, the use of religion for resistance activity, or artistic projects for social collective transformation struggles, 
think of one example of this could be the state, uh, a state creation regarding regarding an aspect of the national habitus could be, uh, for instance, the creation of a politics, a policy, an economic policy of austerity, which is presented as a matter of necessity rather than a product of choice and power, and this goes misrecognized. So a good illustration of the potential levels of social change of a national habitus is found in Michael Boraboy and Carl von Bolder's Conversations. The book concerns is to interrogate the relevance of Bougie's work for South Africa. Holder's contribution addressing the post-apartheid transformation showed that Bougie's attention to social order, which, through the constitution of the habitus, rests on symbolic donation by unconscious submission, helps to think about alternative kinds of social order, therefore about social change. Bourdieu's framework signals subtlety in the understanding of domination, pointed to the processes of ordering that appear unruly and fragmented, enabling thought about what remains opaque in public discourse precisely as a consequence of symbolic violence, <coughs> like the legacies of the colonial past and subaltern resistance in the case of South Africa. For instance, Holder's remarks on Bourdieu's interest in the body in resistance, that is the subaltern habitus, that is constituted of humility and a physical stance of submission, and that this is the same body that contains the potential of defiance as workers on strike action or people in protest movements. Thus, alternative stances, not simply submission, but chiefly resistances, can emer emerge from one same position of domination. This is fresh, fresh thinking about a concept that has been seen as leading simply to the reproduction of social structures. Clearly, the demands to understand social change in a concrete situation, that of South Africa or that of Brazil, stresses tensions in Bourdieu theory. Hodget remarks that in Pascalian meditations, there is a preoccupation with the conditions of challenging the social order via a contradictory habitus or a destabilized field. Agents are presented as having multiple ways of understanding their actions, as much as actions have varied potential of being actualized. A quote from Bourdieu to illustrate, the belief that this or that future, either desired or feared, is possible, probable, or inevitable, can, in some historical conditions, mobilize a group around it, and so help to favor 
or prevent the coming of that future. The reason why uncertainty, imagination, desire of a collective kind disrupt the social order is because they transgress the limits imposed in people's minds. These enact the unthinkable. Thus, the habitus helps to understand social change because it provides a means to account for multiple locations to negotiate strong counterparts, submission and defiance, adaptability and resistance. The concept accounts for interiority by offering a window to understand how symbolic violence inhabits our psyche, how domination is embodied, how repertoires of symbolic challenge may become durable, not simply how domination is reproduced and endured and unchanging. So, having established theoretically that habits is a notion productive to understand social change, how does it help to understand particular choices of engagements in the world. For instance, in a narrative, in a story about a past, or the aesthetic presentation of a situation, on the scenario of a dream of future, how can I see, or how can we see, a habitus operating in these sorts of engagements. In accordance with Bourdieu's general theory, the evaluative character of social action as value of people, practices, or objects is bound by interests of a strategic, functional, and aesthetic kind. Many of these evaluations remain invisible, and some are misrecognized. Thus, there is great complexity in unraveling what drives investments in the world. While capital indicates the ways in which investments can be accumulated, field refers to the conditions of accumulation. I said before that the central notions of capital and field are per necessity invoked in the analysis of the social dynamics of the habitus. In the Bourdieuian framework, liking a person or a thing shows a propensity for closeness, a desire for proximity. Not liking or rejecting conveys non-attachment, a desire for distance. Likes go together dislikes put people apart, people and things apart. So not liking or rejecting conveys non-attachment, a desire for distance. And, but if this utilitarian notion of action centered on profit maximization is predicated as the basis for likes and dislikes, all choices 
would need to be placed within a field of objective, rational reason. Yet, this is one of the aspects where Bourdieu theorizing appears shifting and uncertain. Because Bourdieu does not elaborate convincingly about the origin of investments, he is unable to account for the emotional orientations <coughs> to the world, like with the future that is desired. This is a remarkable lacuna which needs to be addressed with theorizing beyond Bourdieu. I am still wrestling with this matter. To consider the extent of Bourdieu theory potential engagement with this, it matters to acknowledge that an affective grip is prominent in Bourdieu's work. He uses various notions charged with affective connotation, like a feel for the game, being enchanted by the game as in illusion, elective affinities, taste, love, libido, aversion, and nurturance are some of these. In his later writing, he was increasingly attentive to subjective emotional processes. So significant tensions in Bourdieu's theory regard unresolved connections between the limits of freedom of agents from structures and the relations to conscious and unconscious forces in the understanding of social conditions and investments. For instance, how do some connections matter more than others? Or what is it that we come to desire? In Bourdieu, we come to desire what gives recognition. This is desire as the desire to be desired, which is field-oriented and involves often explicit processes of recognition. Do this and you'll be recognized. Bourdieu contends that accepting that psychic processes exist, which he does, what matters is how they interact dialectically with the social. How the social order constitutes the habitus by reinforcing particular psychic processes and not others. Fields create and work on desires. Desires are expressed within the specific form the field assigns to them. A field offers possibility of expression of wishes. This is done within the space of possibles, where change emerges from and makes new things possible, new thoughts and imagination. This is a summary of this which I found, it sounds remarkably circular. So, why do I sustain that the notion of habitus assists with analysis of social transformation because it enables to understand limits to change and potential for change, in particular in how it carries temporality in its operation in fields, its indication of value and application to intangibles, Habitus is a concept that appears constrained within a restrictive space of possibles. So how to break possibilities? I require another concept. I asked earlier 
about how the notion of the habitants helps to understand a particular narrative, a story about the past or dreamed future. I established that habitants is implicated in the evaluation of social action and desires. If habitus is productive in conforming the story, it does not, however, directly assist with understanding what is not in the story, what is not valued, what is not invested on. Absences, the holes in the stories, and the traces of something else in lived experience are serious matters in the stories. This is why ghosts matter. An epistemology of haunting is informed in the work of American sociologist Avery Gordon. The ghostly aspects of social life are confronted as they move out of the shadow in the narratives of a field. Gordon challenges sociology to take up these as material reality, the matter of ghosts. The confrontation of ghosts, the things that haunt personal and social life, requires a particular way of knowing and of making the known by some knowable collectively. Haunting, Gordon claims, does not only account for memory, but also for the ways in which we interact and understand each other and ourselves. The elaborations about the epistemology of haunting are often associated with methods to capture ghosts. Gordon makes an empirical demonstration of the existence and effects of the ghosts in her book, Ghostly Matters. She shows them entire countries experiencing haunting. She focuses on Argentina's terror that created the disappeared, and in the US, lingering inheritance of racial slavery. She draws on photography, novels, and archives to argue that ghosts are marginalized through the material and psychical, uh, material and physical violence of modernity. Hannah Arendt's claim that the deprivation of the space of appearance is a practice in totalitarian states equals here. Argentina's over 30,000 disappeared points to the mise-en-scene among the novels Gordon researches. A strong statement in the novels and in the documents are things like, I don't know anything. I had nothing to do with this or that. This negation of facts is what incited the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo to pin photos of their disappeared children on their chests, using the power of haunt as an animating force, in the terms evoked by Roland Barthes, thus making the dead undisappeared, visible countries. Haunting appears in the realm of the symbolic and is par essence misrecognized. Misrecognition, I mentioned earlier, 
is referred to by Bourdieu as part of the illusion one has about the implications of a game. The game may be a social position, a narrative, and so on. Misrecognition is the hiding of systems of inscription and classification which works in the interest of those with power to select what is valued. Boutier repeatedly shows via empirical work how the marks of social position are reproduced across generations and in some cases in the internal sufferings of individuals. This is a focus in his book The Bachelor's Ball, in his edited collection The Weight of the World, and in his sort of autobiographical account in Sketch for Self-Analysis. La Misère du Monde, or The Weight of the World, in particular offers a number of illustrations via short biographies and vignettes. Material structures are shown to be inscribed in mental structures, often enabling the exercise of power in subtle forms as unperceived symbolic violence. This may relate to design of architectural spaces, ways of dressing, etiquette, ways of keeping distant the undesirables, and to silence that which should not be talked about. These inscriptions misrecognize haunt. The haunting is felt as that which tells what must and must not be done. What matters then are not the issues. Issues may have to do with sexuality, violence, health, economic crisis, and so on. What matters are not these issues as items, but what matters is how they come to matter, the ways in which they affect personal lives and relationality, how the very social historical patterns are constitutive of individual bubbles of these rules. So how can the issues, the bubbles, be moved out of the shadows and become visible? This highlights the significance of inventive methodology to disclose the obscured and often hidden difficult matters in social life. In the case I explore of the exhibition of the dead and disappeared, this is centered on stories about extreme violence during the dictatorship period in Brazil, narrated visually. To understand how ghosts appear, I have further, and I'll be very brief, I have further drawn from psychoanalytic engagements with visual art. An exploration of haunting is found in the work of Israeli psychoanalyst and visual artist Braha Ettinger. In Art as Compassion, she suggests that objects, positionally, aesthetically, can be transport stations of trauma. The place of art is then a border spacing 
a link not quite lost, a mode of visual narration and imagination which mingles with real events. In her 2009 Freud Museum exhibition in London, Ettinger used a silver spoon which both symbolized an erased family history and played a symbolic part in the creation of a future. Ettinger, as an anorexic child, was force-fed with that spoon by her mother. The survivor child was born in a world with no grandparents, sharing the bereavement quest of Auschwitz's survivors about where parents come from. The question disrupted Freudian origin narrative of where children come from, opening the space for the concept of the matrixio. Here, in a nutshell, Ettinger takes issue with Freudian theory about the primacy of vertical genealogy predicated on the father. Her matrixial frame indicates an active position in which affective connections, otherness, human and non-human, non-linear, are made. For Ettinger, matrix, matrixial practice allows the singular histories and resonance of objects to function as a means of transmission, forging links between the spaces created by the appearance of non-presence. We are here taken back to the ideas by Arendt about the deprivation of reality in totalitarian erasure of things and bodies, and to ideas by Butler about politics being performed, making an appearance, emerging between bodies. Likewise, to Bourdieu's notion of misrecognition and to Gordon's capturing of ghosts. All these approaches seek to give visibility to unthinkable matters. Allowing visibility, though, does not mean that matters are seen or are demonstrated. It is important to recognize in our academic work that the narrative of a past and a desired future passes through the mediation of the investigator and many objects, and that their being found depends on inventive methodology. This is a very difficult task. One way of finding the ghost is to tune into the presence of its absence, measuring the silences, taking account of the matters that are significant enough not to be mentioned that are quietened by what is said, muted by the noise of other matters, and also tuning in with the noises. The revelation of ghosts depends on a process of reception of what is or was repressed, hidden and made invisible. A narrative of a story manufactures something that does not as yet exist. Remember that the testimony is always an act of their presence. The workings of remembered 
unforgotten social memory on imagined futures is a theme of great complexity and intangibility. Here, this is encapsulated under the notions of habitus and of autumn. Let me just briefly summarize. As the future arises from the present, which gathers the past, any hidden or poorly articulated aspect of the present may feed into images and actualizations of the future. Given that the ghostly matters are consequential, we need some way of accessing them. These are not easily accessible and are not amenable to methods which deal with more explicit and rational phenomena. Innovative work is needed with different forms of knowledge construction, using cross-disciplinary methods and employing devices, here artistic museum engagements and objects, as hinges between concepts and research and artistic practice to access the difficult, inarticulated, affective, and often unconscious material associated with these matters. I'll stop here. Thank you.